This is Quorum with Quorum's Quorum. My guest today is Arshad Shah, who just recently stepped down as the general counsel of Robinhood, which he joined as its first lawyer. We talked about what Arshad learned in the course of managing the legal and regulatory landscape for a pioneering financial services company. And yes, we talked a little about crypto and GameStop. Enjoy. Arshad, (laughs) great to see you. Great to talk to you again. Hey, uh, yes, good to see you, Karam. Uh, you know, I just want to start by uh, asking you, this is going to get kind of deep already, but, you know, you're talking about ATMs as this, you know, you know, reconceptualizing the technology of ATMs in the time which they came out and as, you know, thinking about them as a type of fintech. And so something that's interesting to me is, you know, in your time at Robinhood, to what extent were you looking at historical precedents for insight about how to chart this new territory? Because I feel like, you know, especially in the history of finance, the deeper you go, the more you see recurring patterns on like a several hundred year scale, you know, if you, if you really look for those patterns. So I was curious, you strike me as somebody who has a broad range of interests. And I'm curious about, you know, how much you drew on, you know, financial history to say, okay, here's precedence and here's, you know, where we can be heading to and here's the ways we fit into the past and here's the ways we depart from it and here's what to do about it. Yeah, I think there are, a lot of lessons you can draw from products and services that have come in the past. And I, you know, I don't know about hundreds of years, but uh, over the past several decades, there've been a lot of iterations of financial services um, and technology has pushed a lot of the uh, financial services delivery mechanisms from person to person to online. And, you know, the current era in the last 10 years is not the first push online in the nineties. There was, the start of electronic trading and at, at larger scales and um, at the eighties, maybe on the um, more um, uh, market maker and, and institutional side. And each of those iterations and generations had financial services that we can learn from. And so uh, certainly it was something that uh, I think any FinTech lawyer that's looking for ideas for um, how to structure things and how things have and haven't worked um, learning from history is critical. And then, uh, in the more recent history, there's uh, always competitors that you can learn from uh, looking at how they've structured product and services and um, seeing what are the good ideas you can pick from there to, to um, you know, find your own path. Maybe I'll ask something specific. I mean, you and I are about the same vintage. So we remember, you know, what the dot-com boom was like. And that coincided, of course, with day trading as a phenomenon. Yeah. And, you know, I think maybe it was last week, I was just pulling up old commercials from the 90s for day trading, and they're hilarious. And, you know, I think anybody should do that. But um, so what are the, were there lessons learned from that era that Robin Hood was conscious of, or that you were conscious of, I should say, in your role, uh, and said, okay, well, here's lessons we can learn from this, and here's things to do, and here's things to avoid? I don't know if I have anything concrete in that vein. And I think it's less about lesson learned than, as I said, maybe ideas for how to approach things and uh, on different issues, how to structure things. Um, Certainly going back and looking at commercials for, uh, uh, you know, laughs about, uh, you know, what was, what was considered uh, groundbreaking back then is, is um, something. And uh, on the other hand, for in terms of practical legal advice, um, you know, a lot of the rules have changed. A lot of the directions that regulators have taken, things have changed. There's a lot of guidance that's come out since, you know, the first iteration of electronic trading. So um, I don't know if there's anything more concrete that you can point at in, in that um, in that 
uh, vein. I think something that's really obvious about day trading in the nineties is, you know, you had, you know, you had um, companies underscoring how potentially lucrative it was. Uh, but, you know, I think a key part of what people are also saying is what a fun and liberating lifestyle it is. And so it's interesting because, you know, if you watch any, you know, like there's so many, I think, late 90s movies, like, say, American Beauty or Office Space or all these kinds of movies. And I'm just so struck by play, or, or Fight Club I'm thinking of, too. There's, there's so many of these movies. And when you pull them up, what I'm so fascinated when I pull them up is seeing everybody in suits. Even down in the peons, you know, everyone's wearing a suit. And so, you know, I think life was very uh, much of a straitjacket for a lot of people. And a lot of people felt very much at the, the, you know, the winds of corporate America, whatever. And, you know, of course, I think, you know, with, you know, I think the explosion of Silicon Valley over the next 20 years and the cultural changes that emanate from there, you know, now, you know, even before COVID, suits aren't a fraction of the part of society that they, they once were, right? And so... I think what's interesting about, you know, the distinctions of this era to that era is, you know, I think, you know, in the dot-com era, you know, so many people look to this as, you know, it's, it's something that's very much of an escape from, you know, what exists already as options for people. But I think the cultural departure now is uh, now people have so much more freedom. There's this, but the creator economy and the gig economy and there's all these other ways to style your life and i think people are being a lot more aware of lifestyle now and so it's interesting to contextualize robin hood in this era in this creator era where people are already inclined to you know pursue their own lifestyle and this is congruent with you know the ability to have control of your finances is congruent with those other goals so it's interesting to see what a different context robin hood supplies there and relatedly, I think what's also interesting is, you know, we talk about gamification, um, you know, and that's novel about Robin Hood. But I think what's also interesting also to tease apart from it is, you know, the zero dollar commission. So, I mean, those two things, I suppose you could have had one or the other. It wasn't logically necessary that you had them both. So I wonder if you can just comment on, you know, thinking about these different pieces of the puzzle for um, accounting for Robin Hood's growth and uh Notoriety, if you will. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that, Malou? I think a lot of that goes sort of beyond what I would say is my uh, bailiwick in, 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 uh, from a legal perspective. But uh, what I've seen, and, and if you look at the broader trend of history, the you know the democratization of trading, the democratization of finance, um, you know, started a long time ago as people went from, Hey, you have to pay mandatory $50 commission. Uh, you know, you, the only option was to call your broker uh, and it went down from 50 to 30 to 20. And so, you know, along the way, Merrill Lynch gave way to Schwab and Fidelity and E-Trade. And, uh, and so in terms of the, the, the march towards making it more accessible um, that that's been a long journey uh, for the industry. Um, and on the cultural side, uh, you know, I think it's the same thing. There's, there's, you know, cultural winds have, have been sort of blowing for, for a long time. And, um, it, it does remind me things, speaking of old commercials, you know, just, just, uh, went past the Super Bowl and, you know, thinking about E-Trade 
commercials of, of old. There was, uh, I think, some dancing babies and some monkeys uh, before that and in late 90s, early 2000s. And so um, kind of also having that um, irreverent cultural attitude or um, sort of not the the suit lifestyle as you're referring to. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I know it's a question that you've probably been asked a number of times, but, you know, so what was it going back to uh, the several years ago that you you joined Robin Hood and joined as their first lawyer? You know, what was that initial spark for you that drew you to it? Because it was it was a significant departure from the kind of work you were doing, which was large litigation, I think largely yeah. IP litigation. So, you know, that seems like a, a really big leap. And so what made you want to take that leap? And, you know, what, what was it that drew you to Robin Hood? Yeah, uh, as an IP litigator, uh, it's it's a big uh, it's a big change of uh, field to to jump to um, going in house to uh, being a fintech lawyer. Um, it was a great opportunity for me, having met uh, the founders Beju and Vlad. They had this beautiful vision and uh, this idea that we could create a mission focused company on democratizing uh, the financial system. Um, Zero commissions seemed like a pie in the sky idea, but they they made it happen. And after sitting out with them and starting to understand what the mechanics were and what the road map was to uh, a successful growing company, uh, it was you know great opportunity and not one that I could pass up. Um, at a personal level, I've always had an interest in finance, um, and so it was a great opportunity to take what I'd learned um, in terms of bridging between technology and law and help um, help this company uh, move forward. Now, I'm, I imagine, were there other fintech or fintech-like companies that you were considering at the time? Uh, no, <laughs> uh, you know, th- that's not an opportunity, you know, as a IP litigator, uh, you know, I was, a, I was a partner at Kirkland and Ellis. Uh, certainly I was, uh, thinking about what, what my career could hold. Uh, but this was something where, um, uh, you know, one thing led to another and, and was able to, uh, uh, find my way to having a discussion with Beju and Vlad and, and, uh, and that, that, um, sort of led to this great opportunity. Mm-hmm. And what was, you mentioned an interest in personal finance or finance personally. And so what was that interest that you had? Uh, you know, as a prosumer uh, user of, of uh, brokerage apps, uh, you know, going back to uh, my uh, undergrad days and, you know, originally being on TD and using Thinkorswim and E-Trade in between and Fidelity for a long time and Vanguard. You know, I feel like I've had an account on every major broker dealer, retail broker dealer app. So, And so it seems like, you know, I, I have noticed that, you know, something that you've mentioned, I remember reading a previous interviews and talking about, um, you know, so you've mentioned, you know, how you had sustained this interest on the side before you joined and that you're talking about when you hire that, you know, that is something that you also value in a potential hire is, you know, someone doesn't need to have necessarily need to have the on point experience, but if they have uh, sustained an interest in something on their own, then, then that is something that's, you know, notable to you. So it seems like you've always had some sort of, you've just this curious mind that there's, you know, you, you had this interest in finance, you were constantly learning. So, you know, I'm curious, you know, in your tenure at Robinhood, what were the things that you were learning on the side? Um, 
Yeah, that's a great question. You know, in the in the first couple of years, it was cryptocurrency, um, which was an on the side thing for a while, and until uh, it became an on the job thing. Um, and so, you know, that was certainly there. Um, I I got great exposure to a lot of different um, areas of expertise at Robinhood. Great engineers, great designers, and just the conversations with them and sort of understanding how they approach their work, how they approach their craft uh, was fascinating, interesting, and great learning experience. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of different areas uh, got, got some training in cybersecurity and how to think about uh, cybersecurity issues, uh, got some uh, training on how to think about uh, marketing and, and growth and things like that. So uh, that was part of the job and, and um, certainly part of the, the, uh, value that you get out of these uh, in-house roles. Well, let's then talk about marketing design because, you know, I, you know, well, I guess marketing um, because, you know, of course, Robin Hood, you know, platform has exploded in recent years. So what are like the rules of thumb or what are the principles that you've learned about marketing that you think are, you know, really powerful and that you uh, think are applicable elsewhere? Ooh, that's a, <laughs> it's a tough question. Uh, I think one of the things that I have been uh, impressed by and what I've seen at Robinhood and other companies that are successful is, uh, you know, having brands that are animated by a purpose really works. It really seems to resonate with customers as a consumer myself. It's, uh, it's a lot easier to um, buy into a brand that has a real philosophy, that has a story, that has a, an ethos about it. What's a brand that you're like an evangelist for right now? Oh, I, you know, I've been a long, long-time evangelist of uh, Ubiquity um, networking gear. Uh, you know, uh, I love getting new Wi-Fi routers and getting the latest and greatest there. So, <laughs> I was not expecting that answer. That's yeah. very cool. So, okay, so back to to interviewing. So, you, I remember you said that you know you learned some fascinating things in the course of interviewing, and you had people from a really wide range of people. What was most left field hire, uh, in terms of background, uh, that you hired? Um, you know, I, I, I don't think I would put it that way. I think the way I would put it is as the in-house team grows as you start with one lawyer as you start as you get to two and five and ten um the narrower specialization comes later your earlier hires there's so much ground to cover that nobody's going to be an expert at it all and so it you know it sort of is less relevant the specific experience because uh those early members of the legal team will be able to leverage uh, some of their specific expertise, but then a lot of it is more of the general ideas about how to learn different areas of law, how to attack different problems, how to find outside counsel, how to work with outside counsel. And so uh, it, it's maybe more of a gradual ramp um, in that in terms of, you know, by the time the legal team is at 15 people, you're starting to be a lot more focused in terms of the expertise you're seeking. So then what are the ways that your role changed in that period of time? Because at first you're the only lawyer, so you got to field everything and then you're able to build this team and eventually get, you know, first you have some other quasi-generalists 
and then eventually get more specialists. So what did, how did your role change as that progressed? Yeah. Um, you are in terms of managing a growing team, uh, you know, day one, you're sort of in the weeds every day, every minute. And, uh, as there's a team that you're working with, you get the opportunity to, um, step back a little bit on some of the issues and delegate and sort of have, um, have people manage different areas on their own. Um, as a practical matter, the way the Robin Hood team grew and the way that I had, um, decided to grow the team, uh, a lot of the uh, more general in-house work, um, I had a more direct uh, direct hands-on as um, as I hired people. Um, I wanted to put them in the spots to have the highest leverage, and um, and so they were mostly working with um, business and product folks on development of new products and services, on uh, improvements to new products and services. And so um, I ended up managing more of the um, routine in-house work. Um, and, you know, real estate and then working with HR and finance and all of those issues that are uh, more common to a growing business so that um, the people who are uh, heads down and focused could be really in the highest leverage, highest growth points where, um, where you really needed that focus. Mm-hmm. And in that period of growth, you know, what would you say is the moment or the accomplishment that you're most proud of looking back and saying, you know what, I really nailed it. Um, I think, uh, the speed with which we were able to launch, uh, Robinhood crypto and really get that was, uh, impressive. And it was, you know, not just lawyers, but, uh, engineers and, uh, operations folks and designers and everyone, uh, all hands on deck effort. And so that was really an impressive thing to see. Um, and, from a Robinhood legal team perspective, I think the the fact that I was able to build out a legal team that was um, diverse in a lot of different ways and pulled from different backgrounds, uh, different experiences, um, I think that's something that I really am proud of. Can you speak to so speak a little more about the the legal dimension to launching the crypto platform? Like, what was what was exciting or rewarding for you in doing that? Uh, it was uncharted territory. I think uh, the when Robinhood crypto was launched, I don't think there were any other retail um, broker dealers with an affiliate um, doing cryptocurrency. And so, you know, our discussions with regulators, our discussions with our counterparties, it was all... Uh, you know, a lot of it was starting from new ground, like, okay, this is what cryptocurrency is. This is how it's going to work. Uh, this is what it means to the, to the customer's existing brokerage accounts. Um, and so, you know, being able to cover that new ground was, was uh, just, you know, intellectually fascinating and challenging. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really interested, and we talked a little bit last time about, you know, the kind of regulatory environment that you worked with. And, you know, I think people maybe have, um, well, I don't really know what people's conceptions are about, you know, the regulatory uh, environment that you were facing and like what that actually looked like. But I'm kind of curious to hear, what are the things you think the United States regulatory system gets right? What, what are the things that you think our regulatory system does really well? Well, I'll answer from my uh 
perspective, my little corner of the world. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I think what we've seen uh, in the last few years for the, um, I guess, explosion of fintech is, is one way of putting it. A lot of different um, innovation from a lot of companies in, in different areas. Uh, I don't think that's possible if regulation is sort of too locked down, um, you know, too prescriptive and too limiting. Um, and so it's, it's certainly true that the regulatory environment imposes constraints on new businesses and new business models. But on the other hand, I think if you look at the trajectory of the last decade, um, a lot of innovations happened. And so I think that is something that the regulation regulatory environment can, can point out as a success. Um, I think the other piece of it is a lot of regulated institutions that have high touch, um, you know, with whether it's FINRA or SEC or um, banking regulators, uh, a lot of that high touch relationship based uh, regulation is helpful in um, protecting the integrity of the financial system. And I know, you know, it's, it's uh, there are challenges there and, you know, I'm not, uh, an expert to speak to, you know, the, the causes and roots of our last financial crisis. But, um, you know, for the most part, we've been able to weather a lot of changes. And, uh, and I think that's in no small part due to the fact that regulators are engaged with a lot of different institutions. Now, when you say high touch, you know, one way of looking at it is, you know, high barriers to entry. So do you feel that, you know, high bear, do you agree with that, I guess? And then do you feel that, you know, barriers to entry are beneficial or a hindrance or, or how do you get, find that balance? Yeah. And, you know, I, I, there are barriers to entry in the sense that you do have to figure some things out to launch a financial product or service. When I look at the landscape today across a variety of financial services, I don't think that barrier to entry is uh prohibitive. Uh, One of the things that I think is helpful in that regard is the ability to launch on, um, you know, the the standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, You don't have to reinvent the entire financial services stack to launch a new product. And so, uh, you know, in the broker dealer space, you can get a introducing broker dealer, um, put in place and have a partner with the clearing broker dealer. And that'll carry a lot of the regulatory burden uh, and regulatory infrastructure for you. And so you can focus on as an introducing broker dealer on, on the things that introducing broker dealers need to do the relationship with the customers and the app or whatever the the interface is and all of those types of things uh, without being solely responsible for things like the regulatory capital and the, the backend clearing accounting, all of those services. So, um, that's one onboard, uh, onboarding ramp in the broker-dealer space. I think that's parallel to the sort of neobank world where you don't have to be a bank or get a bank charter to launch a bank product. And so uh, when I look at the barriers to entry, oftentimes it's more about finding the right set of partners to launch the product or service that you want to launch. Um, and um, and I think that's a, that's a model that helps the financial system maintain sort of that regulatory control while at the same time um, enabling innovation. What makes your good partners in banking? What, 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 you know, how do you align incentives and how do you make sure you're dealing with, 
you know, good counterparties that you can, uh, you can build with. So from, I think from the legal and compliance perspective, particularly in this area of, uh, new companies, new market entrants, um, the, the best partners will help you learn the landscape. Um, they'll help you understand the underpinnings of the regulatory, um, sort of pieces and how they fit together. So uh, when you have that kind of a partner, it really helps the business grow faster. So you don't sort of project yourself or um, aim yourself in a direction that's, um, you know, guaranteed to run into problems. And so I think that's, that's, uh, that's the, that's the best case. I think the worst case is if you don't have, uh, if you aren't able to get feedback on why, if you aren't able to get feedback on uh, why things are structured the way they are, and, and then you're, um, left sort of shooting in the dark. Mm. Well, I want to continue the conversation about barriers to entry by doubling back to something you were saying about, um, you know, another thing that you're proud about with your team at Robinhood was you know, building a, a diverse set of attorneys. And so tell me more what you mean by that. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as I uh, started building out the legal team at Robinhood, I wanted to hire attorneys with different backgrounds, you know, not all, from law firms, not all from in-house departments, not all from government, um, and uh, and then trying to find sort of the the uh, the people who would best be able to fit in and, and work with uh, a growing fintech company and work with our internal clients and communicate and really uh, integrate with our internal clients. And so, um, you know, the first. 10, 15 people coming into Robinhood's legal team. That was, that was, you know, that was the route. And uh, there wasn't sort of one single profile or one single uh, uh, sort of template that, that I was trying to pick from, you know, and I think it's important uh, not just in-house legal teams, but, you know, legal, legal field generally, I have a strong belief that there are so many paths to success. Some people are successful via being heads down and, reading every single piece of precedent and every decision. Other people are uh, successful by building on relationships and learning from their relationships. Other people are successful from being able to efficiently work with outside counsel or efficiently work with other attorneys, that kind of thing. And so uh, if you're using a cookie cutter to hire, you're going to run into problems because you're not going to have that diverse skill set. Yeah, I feel like I've met plenty of attorneys in the first group who are, you know, like, you know, all about the president. They've read every federal circuit case and they can tell you all about, you know, you know, what the standard is for, you know, obviousness or whatever. Yeah. Um, but so tell me more about that second group you talked about, the people that are very relationship driven and are able to capitalize on that. Like, what does that look like? Sure. I mean, I think it's uh, efficient communication. Being able to understand, uh, you know, I think uh, from an in-house perspective, it's often the client service, you know, working with your internal clients and being able to, it, it doesn't do any good if you're talking about an IP issue to know all of the precise factors on obviousness and all of that. If, uh, if you have, you know, aren't able to communicate that with the engineering teams that are actually working on, you know, say uh, a, a, an invention disclosure or a patent issue or something like that. So, um there's uh, there's those type of relationships. A lot of attorneys uh, will have good relationships with people, whether it's classmates, 
you know, former law firm partners or colleagues, whatnot, to be able to bootstrap knowledge to know, you know, how to tackle this problem. Like, okay, hey, um, we have, you know, new privacy regulations coming down the pipe. Uh, who do I turn to? And uh, if you, you know, to, to kind of um, caricature the distinction, one approach would be say, all right, let me just read the entire new set of, you know, the new CCPA say, uh, but uh, I think there are other attorneys who are successful and say, okay, well, let me find out, um, you know, there's 25 different law firms publishing sort of, here's your guide to the new CCPA regs, right? Uh, but to really peek behind that and which ones do I actually want to turn to, to get, uh, get advice quickly, that's, that's another skill. Which of those buckets do you feel that you fit in? Uh, I'm, I'm the, the first bucket, the read the details, read the law. My instinct is always to go and, you know, I, I, uh, my instinct is always to look for an appellate court opinion, discussing whatever issue it is to kind of orient myself. And so is there a particular, you know, bit of analysis that you're really proud of or something that you figured it out and feel like, ah, that was like, you know, I'm really proud of my ability to, to kind of like, you know, pull that out. Um, I, I don't think there's anything that I can go into <laughs> on that front. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, uh, there, there's, uh, there's certainly been times, uh, in my career where, uh, you know, there, there's a sentence in a federal circuit opinion or a sentence in a, uh, appellate court opinion where it's like, that is going to have ramifications down the line. And, uh, you know, uh, so yeah, you get pride out of that though. Maybe it's, it stays inside for now. <laughs> so something that I'm wondering at this point is, you know, so we've, we've charted out, you know, so it seems to me that Robinhood was, you know, uh, kind of at the vanguard of this recent crop of FinTech and really you know, paved the way for a lot of other FinTech to say, Hey, you know, I, I, I can do that too. Like, you know, they're having outside success and they're, they're really, you know, um, making people more attuned to possibilities. And so, you know, I think in some ways it, it paved the landscape for others. And so I'm kind of curious, I think there's going to be any number of people listening to say, it's pretty incredible that our shit spotted this opportunity, you know, it, you know, it, you know, this, it, when it was nascent and not even this realized thing. And so now, yes, there's a bigger field, but, you know, maybe that means um, there's even, you know, it's even more hard to navigate possibly, I'm not sure. So what advice would you give to someone who is setting out to say, hey, you know, how do I find my mission-driven company? How do I find some place that I can grow the way that Arshit grew Robinhood? Yeah, well, for me, uh, being uh, Mary DeMonsi was the key. So, uh, you know, she's the one who found the opportunity for me, having uh, met one of the uh, uh, VCs for Robinhood at a, at a conference, um, Sheil Tile, who is uh, working at NEA and, and um and he had mentioned that, hey, they're looking for a GC. And so that's how I got the opportunity to me. So it's marrying well. <laughs> but uh, in, in terms of generally, I think, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of sources of information. You got to stay up with all of that, you know, whether it's Twitter, now it's Clubhouse. Uh, uh, there's all sorts of uh, online things. And if you're keeping up with the field, you'll have a sense for what you think is interesting and what you think will work. And, um, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying with um, uh, for attorneys to have, you know, areas that they're interested about and learning about um, that'll give them sort of a, a, a jump on opportunities that'll really resonate with them. Mm -hmm. 
So, uh, so in your time at Robinhood, what was the, uh, the most annoying thing you heard from someone outside of the company? It's a good question. Um, I guess at a personal level, the, the idea that Robinhood is for day trading, um, you know, it's, it's a zero commission trading app. You can do what you want with it. <laughs> Maybe that's the, the easiest, uh, uh, easiest thing that, that, uh, that jumps out. And so what, I mean, is there any, you know, what are the things you feel like, uh, people who say that, like how, it, you know, what are the other misconceptions about Robin Hood that you feel like, you know, you'd want to correct or help somebody have a better understanding of what, you know, from your vantage point of the benefit of Robin Hood, or, you know, maybe another way of talking about it is what do you think Robin Hood's legacy will be in five, 10 years? Well, you know, I think it's just been this long journey already, and there's a long journey still to go in terms of democratizing the financial system. Um, you know, from from a personal perspective, I think having seen you know the last four or five years of Robinhood's history, coming in with zero commission trading as part of being mobile first and bringing. Uh, the you know this aspect of the financial system to a new set of customers to a new generation, and then seeing the rest of the industry follow to zero commission, uh, you know that that's in and of itself that would be an amazing legacy. Um, but I don't think that's it. And you know I, I've certainly seen what uh, Vlad and others on behalf of Robinhood have been saying over the last few weeks. And um, wow, it's uh, you know there there's a lot of work still to do, and there's a lot of uh, uh, democratization of the financial system still to go. What do you see as, you know, the really interesting frontiers in our society for ways to democratize, you know, financial access or, you know, even just lowering costs or, you know, improving the access. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, a lot of progress has been made on uh, banking related services, reducing fees, um, everything from, I know the Robinhood debit card has a lot of it, uh, you know, ATM fees and ATM access at more reasonable levels, uh, all of those different things. But, um, and, and I think neobanks have uh, uh, another piece of that. But um, if you look at the overall financial system, there is a lot of um, uh, fees and fee-based revenue um, that's sort of, probably disproportionately falling on the lower socioeconomic strata of society. And so I think that's a, that's a key piece of, of democratization um, that, that needs to keep happening. And, you know, it seems to me that, you know, you, you know, you were able to take this risk on joining Robin Hood, you know, there's a significant risk to this. And so I, can we talk a little about, you know, what were the circumstances that enabled that? And, you know, what are ways that you think, what do you, what are ways you think our system should facilitate that for other people? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's tough. Again, uh, marrying well is a piece of that, you know, <laughs> you have, uh, you know, as a family, you have a financial picture that you're looking at and it's helpful to have, um, have two incomes, um, you know, as another piece, um, uh, at a personal level, uh, I felt like, uh, 
I was a software engineer before I was a lawyer. And that always gave me, I think, a little bit of comfort in taking some risk because worst come to worst, I can always go back to coding <laughs> and get a job doing that. So uh, I feel like uh, I, I still have those, uh, those skills, um, uh, you know, maybe a little rusty, but uh, that at a personal level, I think that gave me a lot of comfort in saying, well, you know, worst case, I can always do that. Is there anything you miss about your coding days? Um, you know, I think there is a comfort in software engineering to a good extent that comes from being able to test your creations. <laughs> and, you know, uh, it's um, it, with legal work and creative legal work, you don't know what the reaction will be until it's out there. Um, and oftentimes, if you're working on con- you know, contract provisions or something like that, maybe it never gets tested. And, you know, that's usually a good thing. Uh, but when it does get tested, there's, there's a, a moment of um, uncertainty as to how it plays out. And uh, you can minimize some of that never goes away, but you can minimize that in the, in the world of software development and software engineering. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me, you know, with, you know, with the achievement that you've had here, you know, with the alchemy you've achieved, uh, you know, this was your tenure was, you know, big success for you personally at a minimum. And so now what comes next for you? I mean, like what, what motivates you? What excites you from here? You know, having accomplished what you've accomplished. What's left yeah, no, I'm excited to find uh, another opportunity to join uh, a small team. And, you know, I, I don't know if that would be um, as founder, co-founder, or if that would be joining sort of an early stage company. Um, but I really enjoyed that the growth trajectory, you know, going from a 50 person to hundred person to a 200 person to a thousand person company and, uh, and, you know, building the team and all of the, uh, all of the work that comes along with that. And so, uh, you know, I'm excited to, to look for that and, you know, don't know what that'll be, but, um, keeping my, uh, eyes open and, you know, ears to the ground to, to find that next opportunity. What are, you know, what's the difference in the path between being founder, co-founder versus joining a team? Like, what are the relative considerations you would take? You know, what would it take for you to do one or the other? Man, if, if I had the idea and the, the vision, um, you know, to, to jump onto, I would certainly try and, uh, try and do it. But uh, lacking, you know, lacking that, I will uh, try to find a founder whose vision I can uh, uh, support. And so we want to talk a little more about, you know, we, we can get back in some of the weeds on, you know, some of the, the finance infrastructure, um, you know, cause I think that's something that people, people don't really understand. So we were talking a little bit last time about, you know, that, you know, one major misconception people have about FinTech, maybe including Robinhood is the existing financial architecture that it's operating on. So can you, or, or with, I should say maybe, uh, can you talk a little about that? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think if you're sitting there thinking, okay, well, the the fintech institute, you know, the, these new fintechs um, are competing with the traditional financial system. That's true, they are, uh, but they're also reliant on it. And I think that's one of the things that's maybe underappreciated is the extent to which to to start a new broker dealer product, a new bank product, a new lending product. Um, you know, you're you're building on 
uh, a lot of existing financial institutions. You know, you will be talking to banks, whether it's Wells Fargo or Goldman Sachs or, you know, whoever it is. Um, you'll be talking to sort of the the less well-known names. Um, you know, Apex is a clearing broker dealer that's a lot of uh, fintech fintechs have um, built introducing broker dealers on. Um, there are some banks that are well-known for supporting neobanks and, um, and, you know, there, there's a lot of other sort of players in the system, um, you know, in the card space, there's all kinds of vendors. And so if you look at that, I think that's sort of endemic of this industry, which is um, the regulatory complexity and the operational complexity is so big, you can't start a new company in this space and expect to go from, you know, build from scratch. You're going to have to build on top of something. And so, uh, you know, it's no different than the, the, um, on the engineering side, having um, Amazon and Google to build on. What are the ways in which people don't appreciate that, that crypto maybe has some of those, a lot of what's being developed in, in crypto and DeFi is, is similar? Um, on the crypto side, you know, I, I, I guess I'm probably not informed enough to speak about that. I think, uh, I have to imagine that those, you know, those institutions are, are being built out. And, uh, maybe the best example is, you know, the, the fact that Ethereum exists as a baseline foundation, the ERC 20 and, uh, ERC 721 to, to build these other sort of tokens and infrastructures on top of. When did you first develop an interest in crypto? Um, you know, I, I recall hearing about it in 2014 um, and sort of uh, thinking, you know, I might, might try buying one of these Bitcoin things and you know, never getting around to it or not figuring out how to open an account or whatnot. Um, and uh, sort of vaguely followed it. Um, once I joined Robinhood, I think uh, I was surrounded by people who were sort of more interested in it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, some people joined Robinhood who had academic experience in uh, analyzing or thinking about cryptocurrency. And so uh, it was a great lunchroom conversation uh, while, you know, before, well before Robinhood was thinking about doing anything with crypto. Are there any ways in which you're bullish on crypto? Um, that. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I, I'm uh, maybe more generally a crypto skeptic. Uh, stable coins and all of the different use cases seem to be getting some traction. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, I've, I've seen a little bit more about uh, the uh, NFTs and uh, sort of how uh, the idea of, of status signaling through crypto tokens. And that's an interesting idea. I don't know if it'll be successful, but um, there's certainly some analogies to uh, conspicuous consumption in the sort of pre-digital era in the physical world. Well, it's interesting because I feel like, you know, we were talking about this this technology stack, and I feel like, you know, there's this, you know, biology stack to finance as well, right? And the status and these other factors are a big part of what even enables, you know, why we even use finance as a tool to begin with. And so I'm kind of curious to hear, you know, we can take the example of something like GameStop and, you know, just there's, you can have a really long conversation about the sociological implications of this. And you can debate even whether there is any at all. 
Um, but, you know, I think uh, some interesting things to talk about there are what are the ways in which we're disconnecting um, some sort of underlying fundamental analysis from the evaluation of the security and just what are the ways in which, you know, we're in this sort of, you know, are we in this post-capitalist type phase where, you know, things are just like floating off into the ether and, you know, they're, they serve, like you're saying, these sorts of other purposes apart from some um, strictly financial purpose. So, you know, have you given any thought to um, what are some of the interesting sociological implications right now from the use of some of these technologies that we're talking about? I guess I see it as more of uh, a continuum um, versus the finance, you know, a continuum building upon the financial innovations of the last 100, 200, 300 years. And, and so, uh, you know, uh, the, I guess the debates are not gone to this day, but you'll still see some people saying, you know, we need to return to a gold standard and that, you know, U.S. dollars have to be backed by some value. And so, you know, the idea of fiat currency itself is is innovative and novel and challenging and interesting. And, you know, if you take that to the next level, it's, you know, decentralized and pulled out from one government and sort of floating out in the ether, so to speak. So, um, and, and so in that sense, it's kind of um, a, a continuum. And, and the idea of, okay, these things are, the, you know, you, you mentioned the value being decoupled from uh, uh, some kind of physical reality, but you know that that's kind of been true for a while. Um, you know, the the dollar is the dollar, and it's not really coupled to much of anything other than okay. In the future, you might need to use it to pay your taxes, and and you know the U.S. government will be there collecting taxes. So you know, at least you have that guarantee that they're they're going to take some payment for that. So, um, and. and and so uh, it's it's uh, you know I, I think the the crypto system pushes to the extremes some of the ideas that we've seen previously. Um, you know, why does a Van Gogh go for whatever tens of millions of dollars if someone can make a near replica for a uh, hundred bucks or a thousand bucks? And and so that's that's. Uh, it, you know, you take that to the logical extreme and now, you know, we're selling, you know, a hundred pixel avatars for tens of thousands of dollars. Now you, you earlier described yourself as a prosumer of, you know, these financial, you know, these brokerage products. Do you consider yourself to be someone who is, you know, generally, are you someone who believes yourself to be living the future or do you uh, like being, you know, to let other people test technology first? Like in your What's your personal attitude or approach to logical <laughs> adoption? Um, you can't talk about it. Yeah, I, I like to be an early adopter, but I don't like to pay the early adopter premium. So, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I think I put it that way. So, you know, uh, I'm certainly not one who has the, the latest digital camera or the latest gaming system or something like that. Um, so, but on the other hand, I do like to sort of know what's happening. And so, you know, my, my hack to that is to be maybe half a generation behind to, to save some money. Okay. <laughs> That's probably about where I am. Uh, you know, just connecting some other dots to something that you talked about earlier, you know, you're talking about the benefits of 
hiring from this kind of broad range of people, building this diverse team, and you know people that are you know uh, somewhat of generalists, and you know, and but you know of yourself, you describe yourself as someone who's you know in the weeds, will read the statute or look for an opinion kind of a person. And so I'm kind of curious because you know clearly you know the the path to Robin Hood came through a set of relationships. And, you know, you, you underscored the importance of building relationships with regulators. So, you know, it strikes me that, you know, relationships have been important to you. So what are some of the most important relationships that you developed, um, you know, in your career? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. I think, um, to progress in a law firm, for example, you have to have great relationships with, um, with people there, with, you know, people in, in your, um, in your class and sort of at your level, but also people who are sort of at varying levels of seniority. Um, and, you know, you can learn a lot from watching the most senior partners there and hopefully, uh, build a relationship so that, you know, you can get some more tailored feedback and not just learn by watching, but learn with, you know, with the interaction. And so, um, you know, that, that's, that's there, um, in, uh, and I, I, I think at, uh, at, uh, the, over the last few years at Robinhood, um, there's obviously the relationships within the companies and, and maybe those are within the company, which is maybe more, um, you know, clients and, and personal relationship, you know, your internal clients, your personal relationships, but in terms of in the law, uh, you know, I would say there's a lot of value in the relationships with, that you have with outside counsel and the the stability that comes with outside counsel that's with you for a number of years. Um, they are the ones who are able to pick up on trends and pick up on sort of the broader 360 degree perspective. You know, your perspective is so focused on your one scenario uh, but having the outside counsel relationships you can trust uh, means that you can get, um, you know, more than that, just one perspective. It, it, it's the it's the true independent check. Now, when you're evaluating outside counsel, you mentioned the word trust and you mentioned um, credibility uh, in that expertise. So how do you find that fix? Are, are there ever circumstances which someone seems to have a lot of expertise, but you just don't feel like there is someone that you can rely on in a certain way or uh, maybe even vice versa? So like, you know, what is the set of criteria you're using? You know, tell me more about that process for how you identify counsel that you trust and you want to build and work with. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, there are obviously the, let's call it the blocking and tackling, you know, being easy to work with meetings and sending documents and following up with red lines, making it sort of easy for them to be your lawyer. Um, you know, we've certainly had, we certainly had outside counsel at Robin hood who sort of didn't meet that bar and, you know, for whatever reason, um, it was tough to schedule meetings or things, you know, we were just not the priority or whatever, you know, I, I don't want to speculate too much as to what the reasons were, but it just wasn't a good working relationship. So that's absolutely critical to get there on the substance. Um, there's very much, uh, uh, that trust element is built on working through issues and situations over time. And it's, 
when the feedback that you get and when the information and guidance that you get is actionable, is um, uh, sort of plays out over time as making sense with respect to that little piece of the law as you learn more about it, those are the situations that help build that, that relationship. So. And what are, you know, it seems to me that um, those relationships that you can maintain over time. So what are the ways that you think, you know, those are, you know, ongoing assets. So what are the ways you think people should be cultivating a pool of relationships in a field now? I mean, so, you know, apart from being general counsel, being in position to select outside counsel, what are the things that anybody in any given field, no matter what your role is, uh, should do more of to grow relationships with, you know, trust people of any tenure or, or maybe you can say specifically yeah. for some kinds of tenures. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think one of the things that's been interesting about the pandemic is kind of laying bare how easy it is if, if you put in the time and energy to do networking mm-hmm. and, you know, that basic networking, if you reach out to anyone and say, Hey, love to chat for 20 minutes to learn about how you're approaching this area, um, uh, I think people are, you know, you won't always, you know, you won't get a hundred percent hit rate, but, uh, it's, it's certainly an easier route to building that set of relationships, uh, than I think, uh, maybe people give credit for. And of course it's an investment. Um, uh, you know, you don't have any immediate return or any immediate need to do that. So you have to make time to do it. And, um, uh, you know, it's easier now than ever. And, and maybe it stays that way going forward. Um, you know, with uh, Zoom, it's just, you know, you can network with people anywhere in the world. <laughs> and to that end, like, what are your views? Because, I mean, you're based in the Bay Area. So, you know, I, I think there's some pretty trite answers about, you know, the, you know, the longevity of places like the Bay Area or New York City. You know, I think it's, I think you'd be foolish to say to short those places. Um, but I'm kind of curious, you know, if you've got some more refined views on that, you know, in view of what you're saying about the ability to build relationships and, you know, what is, uh, you know, do you expect, you know, you know, the next, I guess one way to put it is, do you expect the next team that you would work with to be in the Bay area or do you not have any particular expectation of that? You know, I think that's, that's interesting as a big law lawyer by training, you are used to working across time zones and offices and sort of a a distributed team. I think, um, you know, I, I, this era of distributed work is a little bit different with, you know, zoom or hangouts or whatever you're using. Um, But, you know, when I was at Kirkland, um, there'd be times where I'd be on the phone for hours with someone who was, you know, literally one floor down (laughs) and uh, you know, that was just easier to work that way. And so it was no different whether we were in different time zones or not. We were in the same building and we still didn't see each other. So, uh, you know, that happens and and you're kind of used to working that way. So I I think lawyers are maybe a little more ready to move to uh, a distributed work environment. Um, There is still, I think, some of the magic of uh, serendipity and relationships and uh, in the Bay Area, which will keep fueling it. I'm not super long on it. I think the the it's the sort of beginning of the end in that sense of of the Bay Area being sort of unique uh, in the U.S. and in the world uh, from an entrepreneurial perspective. Yeah, I mean, it may not be a bad thing to again democratize entrepreneurship. I mean, I think that could be a net benefit to society, probably. 
Is yeah, anything, absolutely. Yeah, is there anything that you miss about being at a big firm? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that you trade off being in-house versus being at a firm is sort of the, especially at, uh, at, a, at a big law firm, you're, you're working on sort of 100% of the issues you're working on are hard problems that are at the sort of at the cutting edge or sort of critical of the company. I mean, they're, they're willing to pay hundreds or thousand plus dollars an hour for your time. Um, and so uh, it, it, it's certainly a valuable issue. Um, when you're in-house, you're spread a little more thin and you don't necessarily have time to dig in deep on all these different issues. And so, you know, sometimes it's more about managing the issue and rather than sort of being able to jump in. And so, um, you know, you talked about, uh, knowing the latest law and obviousness or whatever the latest uh, one-on-one decisions are or how the PTAP, you know, you, you, you know, those are luxuries that you don't always have if you're working in-house. And when you're triaging that way in-house, I mean, like what are the heuristics that you developed over time to kind of prioritize what's important? Because it seems like that is essential to your role. Yeah. Um, you know, I think any in-house attorney can get stuck, you know, can come up with a list of a thousand different potential issues to research. And um, in terms of being able to prioritize them, you know, some of it is based on demands from the clients and, you know, what are the issues that are top of mind for your internal clients? Uh, and then some of that is your judgment on, which are the things that have a lot of zeros attached to them, the highest risk, the highest uh, potential for, you know, financial or otherwise um, issues coming up. And so um, you know, ideally you're not getting bogged down on the details on issues that aren't, um, you know, aren't going to move the needle for the business one way or another. You know, something I'm wondering now, speaking of not getting bogged down in the details, is, you know, what comes next for you and that, you know, I, I imagine you have a lot of luxury in what you choose to do next. And I'm wondering how you're thinking about that because in two ways, one of which I'm wondering, you know, um, are you thinking about, you know, going for another home run or thinking about, hey, you know, I want to kind of, you know, do something that's, you know, maybe zero to one or one to N, you know, it's so like, which of those two are you more thinking about? And I'm also curious, you know, like the leap from, you know, doing IP litigation to, you know, being in-house at a fintech company was a huge leap. Is that in subject matter, something else you you want to, to make another leap into? Um, you know, and I'm wondering, you know, you know, I, I guess another way of exploring all this is, you know, why aren't you working on colonizing Mars or you know, <laughs> something like that? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think uh, I'm, personally still very interested in staying involved in fintech. Uh, it's a fascinating uh, conglomerate of issues. You know, there's there given how technologically sophisticated the financial system is at this point, you need some understanding of how computers work, <laughs> you know, how, how computerized systems work. Um, and then, the legal underpinnings are critical to understanding why things are structured and, and then the operational realities are sort of the other, you know, the financial and operational realities are the other piece of that. And obviously the, the 
GameStop saga over the last uh, month has been sort of the you know a, a, a better example of that than I could have ever imagined. I mean, certainly, uh, I don't think many people would have predicted that uh, T plus two clearing was going to be front page news in 2021. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think from a personal perspective, I, I want to stay involved in fintech, and uh, you know, I don't think you can sit around and say, oh, well, I'm, you know, swinging for home runs, that kind of thing. That That's not how I would think about it. I think it's more about finding um, an idea, a, a mission, a team that you believe in and want to join. And, you know, as I said, if I, if I had, uh, if I had the ideas on my own, I'd, uh, I'd be out there, you know, trying to start a company. How much of you with the whole game, like, how much of you was like, thank God that's not on my plate right now. And how much you're like, hey, you know what? Maybe this will remind them of how valuable I am. And these are all the kinds of things that I take care of. <laughs> Neither of those. Uh, for me, I think, uh, uh, you know, the as a litigator, there is an adrenaline junkie aspect to your personality. And, you know, obviously this is the, the highest uh, adrenaline um, situation in a while. So... Uh, you know, certainly um, uh, missing out on on sort of being on the front lines of something. Um, but on the other hand, uh, uh, from my perspective as an outsider now, uh, Robin has handled the situation fantastically well. And, you know, I think we've seen great explanations of T plus two clearing and other issues and sort of a very mature way of handling uh, uh, difficult regulatory circumstances a difficult um you know financial and regulatory operational circumstances yeah i mean i, I think it has done a, a public benefit in uh raising a lot of issues for people to discuss you know understanding how you know order flow works how short selling works and you know t plus two and i think there's a lot of benefits that you know i think we're doing something to educate the general public a little more on these issues my Girlfriend's grandmother, you know, I asked her, I said, hey, have you heard about this Robin Hood GameStop thing? And, and so the, she is a, a very nice woman in the Midwest, in Wisconsin. And she said, yeah, so I just, all I know is there's this app where you can just take money from the rich. And so to me, it's just a genuinely fascinating thing that, you know, an American thinks in America, that's something that can exist. But that's, uh, don't worry, I, I had a long conversation with her about that. Well, here's something I'm worrying about you. Are you enjoying yourself? Are you are you enjoying, you know, I know you're adrenaline junkie, but are you enjoying not being in the thick of things right now? Like, is this a time of your life that you can take stock and say, you know, you've worked really hard, you've accomplished some really great things. Are you enjoying yourself right now, just taking stock of it all? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I have two small kids, a seven-year-old and uh, almost two-year-old. And so uh, having the freedom to, you know, spend more time and sort of, you know, jump in and, uh, needle my seven-year-old on homework and sort of, uh, get the two-year-old to sort of try to play the piano. Those, those are, those are fun things <laughs> to do. So, um, you know, get to do that, uh, get to do a little more jogging and sort of get outside, you know, that those are, those are some good, um, I'm hitting my, uh, trying to hit my 12,000 steps every day. So, nice. uh, you know, the, the Fitbit's working. Um, all, all of that is true, uh, but I think uh, um, I am sort of thinking and reflecting and trying to f- 
see what's next and, and, you know, find another, uh, uh, another interesting journey to embark on. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that happen. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks. Thanks for taking the time to talk. I'm glad we did this. Okay, great. Thank you, Carl. Bye-bye.